Hi there, and welcome to Forgotten Scenes, where we take a look at little microbursts of culture that burned hot and then vanished. Sometimes they left brilliant little legacies. Sometimes they left nothing. We're going to talk about both. This first season has been called The Freaks in the Barn, and we are talking about the glam psychedelic explosion of Sioux City, Iowa in the early 1970s. This is episode 6, Everything Falls Apart. I'm Keith Pilly. Last week, we talked about the cracks that appeared in the golden age of the barn. Sammy Otto's increased drug use and withdrawal. Danny Hoska's brief defection from the visceral realists. The Thwarted's mass retreat into political militarism. And then the rumors, and subsequent confirmation, that Lyle Derrick was robbing Big Tex Lowry blind as he operated the business side of the barn. This week, it all comes crashing down. This is why you've probably never heard of the freaks in the barn or the Sioux City freakout scene. They say that when you go broke, it happens slowly and then all at once. And that's how it happened with the collapse of the barn. Big Tex Lowry was able to convince his father to extend him the money to settle up with his liquor distributor just to avoid scandal. And we are talking tens of thousands of dollars here, and that's in 1974 money. But the elder Lowry was extremely not pleased about the matter, and doubly so when he did some checking and discovered that his son had managed to essentially liquidate his trust fund. Lowry managed to keep the barn open, but he now had no credit with any of his suppliers, forcing the venue to operate on a cash-and-carry basis for anything it needed. And even without the bookkeeping-averse Big Tex Lowry running the affair, this probably would have meant that there was a clock ticking down on the whole thing. Lowry's lack of business sense just ensured that it was a very short clock. Within the barn, if you weren't one of Lowry's confidants, and let's be clear, that was a circle that got a little bit bigger each night, as in increasingly desperate and stressed Lowry picked up the habit of burning off steam by getting eight miles high every night, and standing at the bar during shows holding court about how screwed he was, if you were outside of that circle, things weren't all immediately disastrous. A&R man Dylan Becker did indeed sign the Visceral Realists to MCA. The Hoskas were thrilled with the signing bonus and recording advance. They each bought their father a car, giving the elder Hoska his choice between a Lincoln and a Cadillac if he wanted to drive around town in style. Within the barn, the money MCA had to pay CalPi to buy out the realist's contract helped cover operating expenses for a couple of weeks at least. Becker was interested in wooing the jawbones as well, as was Sean Denison of Sire, but neither of them could penetrate the new self-imposed reality of Sammy Otto. As all of this was happening in Sioux City, the man who had inspired all of this, David Bowie, was haunting a house in Los Angeles out of his mind on immense amounts of cocaine, living on milk and hot peppers, and convinced that Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page was trying to kill him with magic. Sammy Otto was very much in the same situation, except it was a dingy apartment in Sioux City, boxed cereal instead of hot peppers, and Satan himself instead of Jimmy Page. The Jawbone's last show was on November 19th, 1974. It was a miserable, mumbled affair, and she never appeared on stage again. 
Around the same time as Sammy Otto's last show, the thwarted similarly imploded. If you remember, they'd been closing themselves off to the world as they embarked on an increasingly militant and dogmatic Maoist path. At one of their shows in late October 1974, for instance, they followed a typically blistering set of proto-punk with a 15-minute mass chant where Citizen H led the crowd in shouted repetitions of statements like, Property is theft. All power to the farmers. Make the bookkeepers dig ditches. And 1975, year zero, while standing in front of projected films of the People's Liberation Army conducting training exercises. The turn inward didn't even really seem to be hurting the band. They had a somewhat smaller audience, it's true, but the audience that remained was more fanatical than ever, even if the band's increasing hostility to anything it interpreted as capitalism put them more and more at odds with Big Tex Lowry's need to build a big enough cash flow to keep the barn in operation. In the end, their dogmatism did destroy the thwarted, just not in the direct way you'd expect. Guitarist Citizen P., whose civilian name was Jack Park, had quietly decided to marry his girlfriend in August. The other members of the band disapproved on the grounds of marriage being a bourgeois institution and the nuclear family an instrument of oppression. But they put up with it, quote, for the good of the cadre, unquote. But then in early November, the rest of the band discovered that the Parks had bought a house with a mortgage a mortgage from the Veterans Association, even, because Park had spent two years in the Navy. Jack Park was immediately expelled from the band, with the remaining thwarted issuing a communique that simply read, quote, Rest in peace, Citizen P, killed by bourgeois capitalism, end quote. Park responded by telling them that they could go fuck themselves. The problem the thwarted immediately ran into was that their entire sound rested on Citizen P's guitar work. And if there were a few other dynamic young guitar players floating around the edges of the barn scene, none of them were willing to assume the life of proto-punk asceticism required for membership in the thwarted. The band tried a couple of shows with Citizen V's bass run through a fuzz pedal to provide the wall of noise they required, but nobody could even pretend that this sounded adequate. The thwarted were done playing live shows by December 1st, having ironically lived up to their name. Between the loss of the Jawbones and the Thwarted, and Big Tex's apocalyptic ramblings at the bar every night, the freaks in the barn could feel the magic ebbing away. But in November and early December, it wasn't gone yet. There was still a lot of hope about the visceral realists making the jump to MCA. The label, keen to get the band out in front of people as quickly as possible, had booked them into Bell Sound Studios in New York for late November and early December, recording what would become their MCA debut, Head Full of Trouble. This meant that they weren't around during much of the late 1974 stretch of shows at the barn, but they, or at least the idea of them, served as sort of benevolent guiding spirits as second-tier bands played their hearts out every night. We all collectively launched the Visceral Realists, who are now off in New York City recording an album for a major label. Look at the magic we're capable of. Let's keep it going. But they couldn't keep it going. By Christmas, Big Tex Lowry found himself once again sliding into arrears with his vendors and with utilities. The bars in the barn were going to be dry once the booze currently sitting in them had all been consumed and the place would have no electricity on January 1st, 1975. The writing was on the wall. 
The Hoska brothers made it back to town for Christmas, with most of the work on Head Full of Trouble done, and Lowry quietly asked Billy if the realists would be up for headlining a blowout goodbye party on the 27th. Billy said of course they would, and the word quickly went out. Everybody needed to make it to the barn on the night of December 27, 1974, to help say goodbye. As everyone was shaking off their Christmas hangovers, the farewell show kicked off late in the afternoon of the 27th. Big Tex Lowry, presiding over the affair in a toga and a Stetson, stood on stage before the first act and shouted, Everybody drinks for free till it's all gone, before the Minneapolis Garage Act unrequited throb kicked off the opening set. A bacchanal ensued, a legendary one, with 12 acts from Sioux City and around the upper Midwest, and a crowd that steadily swelled both in size and inebriation. And quick aside, the presence of the throb meant that a decent-sized contingent from Minneapolis made the drive to see the show, and although I can't prove it, I think there's a pretty good chance that a young Peter Jesperson, later to mastermind the replacements, and a very, very young Grant Hart, later of Husker Du, were quite likely at this show. The absence of both the thwarted and Sammy Otto and the Jawbones did hinder the mood, of course. Although individual members of the Jawbones did occasionally hop on stage to join in for a song or two with some of the Sioux City bands playing the lead-up, and Jack Park, formerly of the Thwarted, would play two songs with the Visceral Realists at the end of the night, playing dueling psychedelic solos with Billy Hoska on the Realists' Proof of Proof, and a cover of the Flamin' Groovy's Whiskey Woman, and about that Realist show. If the consensus had been that the band had lost half a step since Danny Hoska's brief defection and return, there was no doubt in the barn that night that at least right there, right then, they'd gotten it back. The band poured liquid fire down onto the crowd from the stage. By God, Billy was shooting lightning out of his guitar all night, a showgoer named Jimmy McDonough told the Sioux City Journal the next day. The Realists played a marathon show, hitting every number from their cowpie release, Thrust, most of the material from the just-recorded Head Full of Trouble, and a solid half-hour of additional covers and standards. It was a triumph. It was two in the morning by the time they were done, and then only because Danny's voice was giving out. As the feedback started to die down from their closer, an extended, deranged cover of the Velvet Underground's What Goes On, Skip Chandler stood up behind his kit, and started kicking it to pieces. The Hoska brothers glanced at each other. Billy ran his guitar off stage to hand it to Don Benedict, their friend and roadie, while Danny gripped his Fender P-Bass at the end of the neck and swung it into his amp like a baseball bat. Then Billy ran back on stage, and the two of them joined Chandler in smashing monitors and mic stands. Picking up on the signal, Big Tex Lowry ripped off his toga, but kept his Stetson on, and jumped naked up onto one of the bars and started kicking and throwing bottles. The crowd followed him. Within ten minutes, the interior of the barn was destroyed. The sound system, the bars, the lights, the furnishings, all ripped to pieces. Within twenty minutes, the police were there, working as hard as they could to stop it all from escalating to a riot. The barn scene was irrefutably over. Even if Big Tex hadn't been broke, there was no longer a barn to house a scene. Knowing he was defeated, Big Tex Lowry retreated from the cultural impresario game. He sat down with his father's lawyers a couple of days after the blowout and, with their help, formally dissolved the legal entity that had operated the barn 
and closed Cal Fire Records. Of course, as 1975 began, even if the barn was no more, one of its alumni was still in New York putting the finishing touches on their major label debut. The Hoskas were back in Bell Sound Studios doing final overdubs for Head Full of Trouble. These were difficult sessions. The brothers argued with each other almost constantly, with Danny becoming growingly frustrated with the perfectionism Billy and producer Sandy Perlman were inflicting on the record. Danny Hoska said they were sucking all the life out of the music. Billy said he wanted to put their best foot forward. By the time the record was being mixed, the brothers weren't speaking. And then it got worse. A corporate overhaul within MCA meant wholesale changes within a and and Dylan Baker was fired. The new a and man, a sign of the visceral realists, Zach Cantwell, thought they were a bunch of corn-fed hicks from Iowa and showed no interest in championing the band within MCA. Headful of Trouble was essentially buried, sitting on a shelf until November of 1975, when it was released with a dull thud. By the time they were formally dropped from their label, the Hoska brothers had stopped thinking of themselves as the visceral realists a long time before. I like to think that if the record had been a hit, they could have gone on to a long career together. But we'll never know. Anyway, the realists' formal notification that they were no longer MCA recording artists marks the final, indisputable end of the Sioux City freakout scene. But of course, the participants in that scene kept on keeping on. And I'd like to close us out here by looking at what happened to some of them. In 1978... Sammy Otto left Sioux City and moved to Omaha. I don't want to get too far into it, but she had a rough couple of years there. But it seemed like over time, the change of scenery was good for her. And within a year of moving to Omaha, she was sober. And although she steadfastly stayed away from music, by the mid-80s she'd started painting and making sculpture, um, specializing in large, abstract canvases that explored the figures she'd been seeing out of the corner of her eye for years since the Walpurgis Night show. For years, she was a fixture at the bookstore and bohemian hangout, The Antiquarium, in Omaha's Old Market. And although that place is closed, she's still around the Old Market, and her work's for sale at galleries in Omaha, Minneapolis, Kansas City, and Denver. The Jawbones record Haywire did engender a small but fervent cult following. Minneapolis's Peter Jesperson was a devotee, which is why Sammy is name-checked, on the replacement's first album, Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, in the song Otto. The thwarted, as far as I can tell, all just sort of dispersed and disappeared for the most part. Jack Park turns up here and there in Sioux City bar bands into the 80s. I think he made his living as an electrician. The other thwarted, honestly, I'm not really sure. Sam Hull, a.k.a. Citizen H., might have been arrested at a protest at the Hormel plant in Worthington, Minnesota, but it might have been a different person with the same name. Big Tex Lowry put his impresario days behind him and went to work at his father's car dealership empire, finally accepting his role as the heir apparent to the family business. He never went completely square, though, and kept up a reputation as the most eccentric member of the Sioux City local gentry until he died in 2022 of covid not long after I talked to him while researching this show. The Hoska brothers never did patch up the breach they suffered while working on Head Full of Trouble. In 1977, Danny Hoska was driving from Sioux City to Fargo on Interstate 29 in a snowstorm. 
His car spun out of control, slid into the opposite lane of the interstate, and was struck by a snowplow. He was killed instantly. Billy Hoska had already moved to L.A. when his brother was killed. After Danny's funeral, he convinced his father to join him and his wife out west. In Los Angeles, he had a long and steady career as a session guitarist and mercenary member of touring bands. He even sort of closed out a circle by joining the stage band for David Bowie's Glass Spider Tour. Billy Hoska was never a long-term part of a major band again, but it is beyond question that you've heard his session work on the radio, and maybe even seen him live if you went to a lot of shows in the 80s and early 90s. He is retired in California now, and seems to be doing quite well, and good for him. He does refuse to talk to the press or uh, podcasters. Now, there is, of course, one other loose end at play here, and it's probably the highest profile one. If you have probably heard the work of Billy Hoska on the radio in anonymous form in the 90s, I'm comfortable saying that if you care enough about music to be listening to this show, you have absolutely heard the work of Chris Gaines. Starting with his weird, unsettling indie work in the mid-90s to his major label debut, The Life of Chris Gaines, in 1999, Gaines spent a solid decade as the indispensable man in post-grunge psychedelic rock. This is the guy Pitchfork referred to as, quote, the man who picked up Cobain's mantle, end quote, after all. And that was after the minor fiasco when Gaines, ever the shapeshifter, released a country album under the name Garth Brooks. Gaines was, of course, the young son of Jim Gaines, who spent so much time hanging around the barn in its heyday, soaking up everything he saw. Gaines is, of course, still going strong here in 2023. He said in multiple interviews that he does what he does because he was inspired by, quote, a bunch of really glorious weirdos I knew when I was a kid, end quote. And now you know who those weirdos were. And maybe the next time you hear, that's the way I remember it, it'll resonate a little bit differently. And that is it for The Freaks in the Barn, the first season of Forgotten Scenes. I really, really hope you dug it. And, you know, please find me on the internet and let me know if you did, or if you hated it, as far as that goes. You know, that's another good thing for me to know. Uh, Also, please let me know if you have any questions. If there are enough of them, it's not out of the question that I would put together a bonus Q&A episode. And of course, as always, please tell somebody else about this if it seems like it might be their job. Thanks, and be well. Okay, I'm not actually gone. I'm here. Um, Now, everything I told you for the past six weeks has been true. But just for the sake of argument, pretending that I might have made some of it up, we'll just, we'll pretend that for the rest of the way here. Um, If that were the case, well, then what would be true in here? Not much, really. Bowie was never trapped in Sioux City. But I did try to make that timeline work with his actual tour schedule, And I think I've at least portrayed the way he and Ronson and Boulder and Woodmansey acted around then pretty accurately. He really was living and operating way beyond his means in the early 70s, although I don't think it ever actually resulted in catastrophic bus failure. Of course, none of the people in Sioux City were real. Um, I would like to just profoundly thank Rebecca Collins and Joel Jensen for helping me to bring Sammy Otto and Big Tex Lowry to life. 
And I would really like to thank Ken Lowry uh, first for helping me to flesh out this whole idea and then for agreeing to let me borrow his name for a uh, you know, ridiculous car of impresario. Um, and again, thank you for everybody who has put this into their ears. Um, I just never stop marveling at that. So the main thing I wanted to get at with the whole show, and I hope I did, is that cool cultural shit can happen anywhere. It's easy to look at a place like Sioux City, or frankly the entire American Midwest, and say, nothing happening here. And that's just never true. The creative weirdos are everywhere. Sometimes we're just not as visible. A couple people have asked, will there be a second season of this? Um, probably. I do have an idea for it at least, although it would need a lot of fleshing out. A hint on that. If you weren't there, you would not believe how weird the world of video games in the late 1980s was. But I also maybe have an idea for more Kraken stories um, and a couple of comics projects, so the timing of everything here is a giant question mark. Watch my social media, I guess. Um, I'm Keith Pilly on Twitter and Blue Sky right now. You know, Twitter, who knows how long it's going to be around. Anyway, find me online, watch for updates. And of course, if there's something major to tell you about either this show or the Kraken Busters, I will post an update to this feed. Uh, what else? Theme music for this season is Lovers by Derailer, great Twin Cities band. Um, I guess that's about it. Right on, thanks again, and uh, I will see you somewhere around. It was just the 4th of May Everything it's in